The Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 2, when he gives instructions for worship to the church, he says this, and uh, it's an amazing statement. He says, when you gather, I want you to pray and make intercession for all people. In other words, pray for every person in the world in your gatherings. And so that we will do this morning. I've been working on that in, in my own journey and uh, just praying for massive groups of people, praying big, praying for every person in the world. And so uh, I came across a prayer from uh, a guy named Dan who attends uh, Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan. And uh, they, their congregation has been writing a lot of prayers and I thought this was appropriate. And our prayer would be that every person in the world would be able to pray this prayer. So let's pray. Begins with Psalm 19, one and two. The heavens declare your glory and the sky proclaims your work. Each day pours out your speech and each night reveals your knowledge. Yet there are no words. And so I forget, I'm distracted more than that. I'm driven, I want comfort, I want to scratch the itch. I want the good word from him or her or them. But then your word, your good word reveals itself. You made me, not just that, you made me like you. And though I fell, you scooped me up and put me on your shoulders. The good things I have today can never be taken. The bad things will be worked together for good. And the best is always ahead. That's not sentiment, but solid and valuable as gold, sweeter than honey, righteous and true altogether. Let me consider the following. Coffee. The last four minutes of Appalachian Spring. My daughter's fascination with socks. The miracle of an email. An unnecessary dispute avoided. An important fight had. An unexpected solution. The subway train pulling into the station just as I arrive on the platform. Or the subway train pulling out of the station just as I arrive on the platform. Something rather than nothing. All gifts, all from you. Now let me consider Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, you created all things. They were created for you, and yet you gave them up for me. You became estranged from them, from the Father, for me, for us. You've made my story, our story, a comedy instead of a tragedy. It all ends with a wedding and a feast, not death or a bloody stage. You are worthy of praise. Lord Jesus, today I live and move and exist in you. This is a mystery. Help me to recognize and praise you for good things and to know you better through suffering and disappointment. Holy Spirit, protect me from my presumption. 
and open my eyes to the glory of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Reign in this world, my world, our world, today. Reign. Make our words and thoughts acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. If you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood. And don't assign them tasks and work. But rather, teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. In a London museum called the Tate Britain Museum hangs a painting by Sir uh, uh, John Walter Malays, and uh, it's called The Boyhood of Raleigh. Sir Walter Raleigh was an intrepid explorer under the reign of Queen Elizabeth I. And with the painting, Malays is asking the question, what made such an adventurer? And his hypothesis, as you can see, is that there was a wizened and withered sailor who captivated imaginations by telling tales of what lies beyond the horizon. So we begin a five-week series on worship. In the next weeks, we'll be talking much about how to worship, what God asks us to bring and do and be. But we thought the starting point for a series on worship would be to point to the endless immensity of the sea. And that will help us build the ship that we call worship. And so as you've read, as CJ read, if you heard, we are looking at the great worship that is happening in heaven now and always. That's the sea. Every time we gather, we're taking our thimbles and dipping out the ocean from that picture in heaven. There's the sea. Let that speak to us about worship. As we approach the text, we're reminded that in Revelation 1, and the whole vision of Revelation is Jesus inviting John to look into heaven and see what things must take place. Look into heaven. That's a reminder to us as we begin that every time we gather for worship, it is an invitation to participate in the life of the triune God. We're not just dabbling here, folks. This is not just a human tradition. Dabbling, no. Participating in the life of the triune God. When we begin to understand the worship that's going on in heaven, we're also reminded that when that comes down and is part of what we are doing here, it's the answer to the basic questions of being human. In other words, worship is an invitation to participate with God. It's also an invitation to ask questions such as, why are we here? What's the point? What matters? Where's history going? And who is holding this together, if anyone? Those are the questions 
that call us into worship. So what you need to decide are the what if questions. What if there is a devastating reality, an alternate existence of a place in the throne room of God where day and night the elders and the and the um, the 24 elders and the living creatures are before the throne of God saying worthy worthy are you what if that is the actual reality and what we existence is a part of that reality but a dim glimmer of it what if we are in an alternate universe where that's reality and all that is essential is unseen And we, connected to that reality, are trying to make a dim glimmer of it. What if that's real? And what if every time we gather, our longing and our plan and our intention is for us to connect our reality to that reality? What if every time we gather, we begin to get in phase with the worship that's going on in the throne room and getting in phase means we begin to pulsate with that energy here? What if? What we want to do now is enter the throne room of God and observe, just you know, buckle in the back row, sit there and watch what's going on in this worship in heaven. We want to experience it. We want to learn it. Then we're going to take an interview, an interview, an interlude, an interlude, because I think we might need a deep breath after we've been there. And then after the interlude, I want to come back and talk about two implications of having visited the throne room, what that should mean for us as worshipers. Okay, sound good? You with me? All right. It'd be best if we walk through the, the worship in heaven scene by scene. So scene number one in verse one of Revelation five, we see a scroll. Scene one is a scroll. And this scroll is uh, made of papyrus in John's day. Papyrus is a plant like rhubarb or celery, and you would take string by string off and lay them out in a square, sprinkle some resin on it, some glue-like substance, press down, pound down, and it would dry, and that's one page. And you'd make another page and another page, glue those together, and then wrap it around a stick. What's interesting, John makes note, that the writing on the scroll is on both sides. Now that was highly unusual in the ancient world. Not only because the papyrus paper was very absorbent, but even more, you would write with a quill and die, and so it would just suck up the ink. So you would probably be seen on the other side. You normally only wrote on one side of a scroll. This has both sides written. Why? Because there is so much to say about the restoration, the coming restoration and the coming judgment of the world and the culmination of history, so much to say that it takes both sides of the scroll. Some scholars think that what's on that scroll is what they call the Lamb's Book of Life, which is the name of every person who's ever known God. Some think it's the Old and New Testament. Some think it's everything that's still to come. I think it's everything. I think it's the meaning of everything. I think it's the restoration, the judgments, all the wisdom of God in this scroll. What he has for us. What is yet to come. 
The meaning of everything is there. But notice on the scroll, it's sealed with seven seals. This is uh, reflecting the Roman estate law and even the Jewish estate law where when someone made their will, it would be sealed with a piece of string around the scroll to hold it together and then a melted blob of wax on that knot of the string with some sort of ring insignia or initials. And all of the witnesses verifying that we are witness that one person, we would call that person the executor of the will. One person, we witness has the authority, the access to open this scroll, to look inside it and to enact its provisions. So it's a sealed scroll that's packed with the future. So, scene two. There's a strong angel that asks and speaks out, who is worthy to open the scroll and to look inside? asking if there's anyone who has the attributes, who has the authority, who's been designated by the witnesses, who has access to the throne to approach the right hand of the Almighty and take that scroll. Scene three, silence. There is no one, no one with those attributes no one with that authority, no one with the access to approach the scroll, not an angelic being, not a human being, not any created being. There's silence. Scene four, verse four. Because of the silence, John weeps. And this word in the original language is not just a tear down the cheek. It's, it's the bent over, gut-wrenching, Wailing might be the better word. Wailing. He's broken. Why? Not just because he can't look inside and see how the Left Behind series ends and what's coming. No. He's wailing because the implication is that if this scroll is not opened, if it's not unsealed, then all the purposes of God will fall to the ground. And creation will have no meaning and pictures will have no words and, and the events of your lives and mine will have no story. There's no meaning. The church has suffered for nothing. And John weeps. There's no answer. And everything is hopeless. Some of you this morning are living there. You are tasting John's tears. Things in your life have broken. You've lost what is most dear to you. There's nothing but screaming silence from heaven. We honor you for being here in your tears. Scene five, John hears a voice. He hears a voice. It's one of the elders, more on who they are in a minute. One of the elders making a proclamation, an announcement of good news, something that we would call gospel. 
And the gospel says this announcement of victory, that there's a lion, a lion of Judah and a root of David who has triumphed. That verse is seeped in the Old Testament. It goes back to Genesis 49 when Jacob, the father of Israel, was on his deathbed and he was blessing each of his sons. He said that when Judah came, he said, Judah will be the house of kings and from Judah, the scepter, the ruling power will never depart. This lion is the king of Israel, but he's the root of David. That's the idea. Uh, you know, when we think of a great ruler in our culture, we think of Washington or Lincoln. In the Jewish culture of that day, they would think of David. He is the root of David. It's interesting. In Revelation twenty-two sixteen, Jesus says about himself that I am the source of David and the descendant to his throne. Now think about that. Source of David, which means he created David. Before David was, I am. But he's the descendant of David, a, a, a baby. The word become flesh, the king become human, a baby who could die voluntarily to save his people. God, man, the perfect mediator to bring God and people together. He's the king. It's interesting. It says he triumphs. It's the strongest word for victory. There has been a battle, folks. There has been a battle. And things look very bleak during the battle. But up from the grave, he arose. He's the lion of Judah. There has been a battle. And the lions, well, let's just say they do not saunter. This is not a tame lion. He has won. He has defeated sin and evil and death. He's won. Not a tame lion. And John hears lion-like victory has occurred. When he looks, scene six, he sees a lamb. A lamb. A unique lamb. It says a slaughtered lamb. Its throat slit and bleeding. He sees the blood of the lamb. We're reminded of the prophecies in the Old Testament such as Isaiah 53, that when Jesus would come, he would come like a lamb led to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before its shearers, so he opened not his mouth. You see, this is the central paradox of Christianity. Jesus, the king, the lion of Judah, saves the world, not by power, but by his own death. Not by violence, but by his willing submission and sacrifice. That was the plan all along. You see the lamb has seven horns. That represents power. He's omnipotent. And it says seven eyes, which means he sees everything in perfect vision. He's omniscient. He knows everything. You see, the lamb slain, from the foundation of the world was God's plan from his throne all along. He's the lamb. And the last scene, scene seven. 
seeing this story, the struggle, the victory, the lamb, the people sing. Would you read this with me out loud? And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests and to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. There is worship and there is singing. And the final scene is the singing of songs, proclaiming that the lamb is worthy, worthy, worthy. It's where we get our English word worship from, worth-ship, worthy. There is the worship in the throne room of God happening now and always. There it is. You've witnessed it. You've seen it. Let's take a deep breath. Interlude. A quote from N.T. Wright that gathers the tension of what we've just witnessed. And frankly, I think the tension of what we do every time we gather. Here's what I mean by tension. Every time you walk in here and we're going to worship as the gathered church of Jesus, we're making at least two decisions Probably as we do it more and more, it's such a habit that we don't even think about it. But I want to remind you, when you gather here and worship in the name of Jesus, the first thing you are saying is that that story of the lion who is the lamb who has won the victory, that story is my story. That story defines me. And you enter it again, and you proclaim it again, and you wrestle with the implications again. But that story is your story. That's the first thing. The second thing, just by sitting here and walking into a Christian worship service, you are also proclaiming how much God means to you. His worth. How much does God mean to you? That's why we're here. Okay, interlude. How can you cope with the end of a world and the beginning of another one? How can you put an earthquake into a test tube or the sea into a bottle? How can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human, that fire has become flesh, that life itself came to life and walked in our midst? Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It is either the most devastating disclosure of deepest reality in the world or it's a sham, a nonsense, a bit of deceitful play acting. Most of us unable to cope with either of those things condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world in between. We may not be content there, but we don't know how to escape. How do we escape? By pointing to the endless immensity of the sea. Focus on the worth of Jesus. That's the end of worship. The worth. Sheer, unadulterated worship of Jesus Christ and how much he means to you. So two two implications, two take-homes. First, 
when we talk about worship and worship this endless sea that's going on in, in the reality in God's throne room, the first thing we understand is that worship is a universal condition. Everything in the universe is wired for worship. Everything. When you see in the text in Revelation 5, the 24 elders, what they're talking about there, what John's vision is of the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles, which means God's people from all time. They are worshiping. And then these four living creatures, we're actually told what they are in chapter four. It was an ox, a lion, a face of a human, and an eagle. Ox for domesticated animals, lion for wild animals, human face for humanity, and eagle for flying birds. And we're taking back to the days of creation. We're, we're echoing, John's echoing what it says in the Psalms that's happening all the time. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Everything. Everything in the universe is constantly worshiping its creator. Everything. Every living thing is designed to worship. I was reminded of this. Been doing a ton of hiking this summer, so it's been an awesome summer here in Colorado. And um, up on the high peaks, 13,000, 14,000 feet, what has really stood out to me is how many living things there are at 14,000 feet. Growing in rocks, there are columbine and moss in the high elevation where there's no dirt. It is like mind-boggling. I was walking up, scrambling up Yale, about to die. Uh, I, need, I needed a boost, and I don't know why. I saw these columbines way up high, and then I saw this moss, and all of a sudden, this is going to date me, forgive me, but uh, the song, MC Hammer, dun, 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 can't stop this. I know it can't touch this, but I needed some rhythm to get to the top, and it can all of a sudden, I see this moss and this columbine. It's like, can't stop this. No matter how high you go, no matter how far you go, you are going to run into something that's blooming to praise the Lord. You can't stop this. You can't. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. That includes you, by the way. You. We are worshipers. Do I need to illustrate that to you? Yes, I do. I want to. It's going to be fun, right? We are about to enter one of the, the, the prime time seasons of worship in our yearly calendar. It's already started. Do you know what it's called? NFL. <laughs> what is the NFL? The NFL means that you empty your pockets to participate. It means that you prepare by reading and studying to get ready. It means that you direct the whole rhythm of your week by planning meals and even laying out your clothes. It, it means that during the worship experience, you jump, you shout, and you curse. What is all of that called? Worship. Mm-hmm. We see it in one of the great altars, great in terms of influence, altars in our culture called sex. That is a worship experience. For, I mean, some of us are more refined and secretive. We'd never let this out. Others of us will admit our addictions. But how much pull? We, we would be chagrined if people looked into our heart and saw how much pull a sexually, uh, sexual object has on our heart. We would be chagrined if we saw 
how much it pulls us. And we would be ashamed if other people knew how we rely on those sexual images to get us through our stress, our disappointment, our hurt. How much it consoles us. What's that called? That's called worship. It was Chesterton who said that every man knocks on the door of a brothel looking for God. How about celebrity worship in our culture? We have this penchant to connect ourselves to bask in reflected glory of the super rich and the super beautiful and the super athletic and sadly, even the super criminal. We want to be in their orbit because we think, well, if I shook hands with George Bush, you'll be impressed with me. Where does that come from? I suggest some of that comes from a memory trace where we're always looking, we're wired to find something bigger than ourselves and connect to it. And we ultimately want someone who is altogether beautiful and powerful and strong and right and true. There's a memory trace there in our wiring and we want that. I'm suggesting that every time we gather here for worship, one of the things we do because worship is the universal condition is check our idols at the door. What have we leaned on this week to get us through a day? What have we sacrificed our time and money for? What have we discovered really has us by the throat and we're really, really worried about how much control it has on our life? What, what is it that makes us cry? When we gather for worship, we are checking our idols. What are we worshiping? Some of you say, ah, Larry, come on, get off that. That's, I see what you're saying. I think people do get addicted and, you know, they, they do really crazy things. But me, you know, that's not me. In fact, my worldview, you know, it ends at the ceiling. We are just here. We are random products of chemical reactions by forces that never had us in mind, all right? We're here. It's brief. It's small. It's flat. It's nothing. The first thing I would say to you about that is that is a story. That's a good story. Thank you for being bold enough to share it. It's a story. I mean, I have my story. I think Jesus is someone you have your story that we're just here by random chance, by forces that never had us in mind. That's your story. So the first point I make is we all have our stories and everyone buys into a story to explain the reality. So good, start there. The second thing I would ask you about that story, if we're just here by random chance, product of forces that never had us in mind, have you really thought through the implications of that story? Really? I mean, if that's the story, if we're here by the Darwinian chance, I mean, if we're, if that's our story, then when you're dead and gone, you're nothing. Meaningless. The only remnant of you is some cells of DNA and your ancestors a hundred years from now will not even know your name. You are Nothing. How can you even conceive of the meaning from a story like that? And why these longings in you to be more than that? 
And why do you smuggle in things from other worldviews into your story? Things like love. I mean, where in the world would love come from if we're just a random product of forces that never had us in mind? Where would love, how can you even conceive of love? How can you even factor an emotion? Is it just a chemical reaction in your brain? How can you even talk about ethics if we're the product of random chance? Seems to me the, the ethic that we all need to live by is kill them before they kill me. How can you can see you're smuggling things from other worldviews? Beauty, love, ethics, Factor the implications of your story and don't steal. By the way, that explains something that I know bothers many of us about the Bible where there's this God who's always saying, worship me, worship me, look at me, I command you to praise me. It's like the guy at the party who goes on and on talking about himself and then says, well, enough about me. How about more about me? What is all that praise me stuff? Here it is. God does not need you to praise him. You need to be able to praise him. When you praise him, you've never been more alive, never been more human, never been more in line with what you were made to do than when you praise God. God doesn't need our worship. We need to worship. It's the most joy-filled human thing we can do and be fully alive. Okay, there it is. Worship is the universal condition. We check our idols at the door when we gather here. We examine them. But secondly, the second implication is that worship is an individual collision. We bump into something here when we worship. We bump into some. What's interesting about the text is it has all the elements of things we do in worship, in that reality and in this reality. It has praise, it has confession, it has thanksgiving. That's all happening. It has, uh, there's five songs in Revelation 4 and 5, so there's singing. It has music. It says that there's a, what did it call it, a um, harp. It's really a lute, which in our realm of music would be a banjo. I'm telling you that folk music and bluegrass is the music of heaven. <laughs> I'm sorry, but it's true. It's there. All right? Ralph Stanley, may he rest in peace. He's the worship leader in heaven. <laughs> Preaching is there. The announcement of the good news from the scroll. It's all there. We'll unpack more of that as we go through Revelation. What I want to get is under that, what motivates us to participate in those things, those means of worship. Here's the heart of worship. It's gathered in that word, worthy. When they sing the songs, worthy is the lamb. It's really an economic term, that word. It's really about how much money is God worth to you? What will, you, how, will you empty your wall? How much? Three pounds of God, how much would you pay? How much is God worth to you? 
It goes back to Jesus when he was talking about life in the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 13. Let me embellish the parable a little bit, but he says, you know, it's like there's a lot next to you. You have your house, you're living there, you're happy, this empty lot for years and years next to you. You don't even notice it until one day, plunk, someone plants a for sale sign next to it. And you think, whoa, how much are they asking for that lot? $100,000. You think to yourself, wow, you know, I don't have 100000 in my bank account. Maybe if I sold my house, I could do that. But, you know, that's just too much money for me. So, you know, live and let live. You go on, a friend knocks on your door, boom, boom, and he says, hey, I just like heard a story that in that field next to your house, there's a buried treasure. And uh, you think, ah, neighbors, you know, that's impossible. Neighbor shows up again a few days later, knock, knock, knock. Hey, I not only heard some stories, I, I think there's evidence here. I think there's evidence. I have some evidence that there's a buried treasure under that field. You think, oh, uh, implausible, impossible, implausible. Uh. Knock, knock, knock. Hey, now I have stories and stories of these things that keep happening about this buried treasure in this field, and I have evidence. Finally, you think, okay, maybe, maybe. And you take your shovel, you start digging. Boom. You hit it. You hit it. You open it up. Oh, man, paper money, precious stones, gold, silver, pearls, everything, a gajillion dollars. Now what do you do? Cover it up, hide it. Go to the bank, take out every penny you have, sell your house. $100,000 is nothing compared to this. Now I've got this. What's this worth to me? Everything. Everything. Your, your wife comes up to you. What in the world are you doing? You sold our house, you sold everything. What has got into you? That is worship. What has got into you? What's got into you is the inestimable worth of knowing Jesus. And for that treasure, you'll sell everything. How do you know if you are worshiping? How do you know if you're proclaiming Jesus as worthy? Two ways. First, the end of the song in Revelation 5 and verse 14, it says that all the elders and the four living creatures say, amen, at the end. You know that you are worshiping when you are proclaiming God's worth and saying amen to everything he says. Amen means yes. Amen means I agree. It's radical agreement. Amen means that Jesus now gets to tell you how to spend your money. Jesus gets to tell you how to invest your time. Jesus gets to tell you how you work your relationships. Jesus gets to tell you how you use your tongue and how you form your opinions. It's a yes to Jesus to have control and access into every part of your life. You know you are worshiping when you become a giant amen to Jesus. Secondly, in verse 10, it says, we become kingdom of priests when we worship. Kingdom of priests, what's that? Well, a priest would be the one who offers the sacrifice. The priest would be the one who slits the lamb's throat. When a priest went to sleep at night, he closed his eyes and on his eyelids, all he could see is bleeding lambs. Bleeding lambs. Say, Larry, what are you talking about? We spend a lot of our time each week, you and I, working on our self-esteem and our self-image. And we are hurt by words that people say to us and we are hurt by words that people don't say to us. And we're up and we're down and our moods are up 
and we're down. And all of it rides with our self-image and what we think people think of us. When we are called to worship, we become a kingdom of priests. And when a priest closes his eyes, he sees the bleeding lamb. In other words, he sees how much God loves me. As priests, the world will hurt us, we'll be up and down, but when we close our eyes, we see the blood of the lamb. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That means every time you see the bleeding lamb as a priest, you hear him say, I love you. My friends, there is only one opinion of you that counts. And that opinion is what God thinks of you. And every time you close your eyes, you see the blood of the lamb and you hear him say, I love you. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so.